Performance Podcast from Bottomline Technologies. Direct debits are an obvious choice for businesses with clear benefits to cash flow and administration timescales, but it isn't always smooth sailing. If done correctly, direct debits can make your company's payments collections more manageable, efficient, and cost effective. Do you know if you're making the most of your direct debit collection process? I'm Fiona McCarran, host of this Payments Podcast, and this episode focuses on how to really ensure you're making the most of collecting your direct debits by applying best practice and what the benefits you'll see when you are. With me today is Andrew Strickland, who delivers BACS accredited direct debit training and has worked with direct debits for 10 years. Andrew, can you tell us about how companies can ensure that they're always compliant with the direct debit scheme rules, please? Well, the rules are reviewed throughout the year by what we know as the member banks. They're the banks and financial institutions that actually own BACs. They're responsible for the integrity of the scheme. But the rules are normally updated just once a year around about December time. Very rarely addendums are issued during the year. So, for instance, in 2010, I remember that when the new automated indemnity claim process was introduced, there was a slight adjustment to the rules partway through the year. The service user guide and rules to the scheme are available at backs.co.uk, so companies can download a copy of the rules and keep up to date with them. They will need a username and password to be able to log on and download those. When new and updated versions are issued, They include a list of amendments at the beginning of uh, the service user guide, so it's easy then just to update yourself with what the rules say. In addition, another way of uh, making sure that you're compliant with the scheme rules is to have a direct debit management system. Some companies provide systems that are designed to automate the processes and help to keep you compliant. So for instance, they can automatically generate the files that have to be transmitted with the correct information at the right time when you want to lodge direct debit instructions or collect money. They can also create and send the relevant communication that has to be given to the payer, things like advance notice and confirmation letters. And also, as part of the scheme, BACs generate reports or messages that come back to the service user with a direct debit management system. You can download and apply these reports to your systems and update your database or your back office systems. And what happens if they aren't compliant? Are there penalties for non-compliance? Well, service users are monitored by BACs and by their sponsor bank or payment service provider. And they might be required to change processes if they're doing something that is clearly against the rules. And just to mention that when a service user joins the scheme, they sign a declaration that says that they have a copy of the direct debit scheme rules and that they agree to comply with them. And they acknowledge that if they're not doing what they're required to, it is possible that they can be removed from the scheme, which is not much fun if uh, you've built your business around collecting payments by direct debit. And what responsibility do organisations have around the data side of direct debits? Well, the direct debit scheme rules don't actually cover data protection regulations. However, the process clearly involves sensitive data. You will have access to people's addresses, their bank details, etc. 
So you need to keep up to date with such legislation as GDPR. As far as the system itself is concerned, the files are transmitted over a system that uses high levels of security, something called transport layer security or TLS. Something else that the rules do say is that uh, data when exchanged between systems shouldn't be rekeyed. So there should be automated processes in place for that. Uh, and Audis service users, so they are service users that have the ability to lodge or set up a direct debit instruction on someone's bank account electronically, may be required to provide a copy of a direct debit instruction at some point in the future if the payer disputes giving authority. So they have to give some thought to how they're going to store that direct debit instruction and, and where, because it contains people's bank details. One thing just to mention about that, a question that often gets asked is how long should an Audis service user keep a direct debit instruction? Just to bear in mind that the indefinite nature of the direct debit indemnity means that uh, someone can claim money back under the guarantee at some point in the future. So there is a legitimate reason to keep a direct debit instruction as long as may be required. And how does this change if they're a paperless direct debit service user? So perhaps we should just clarify what a paperless direct debit service user is. Uh, paperless direct debit is where, as it suggests, there isn't even a piece of paper that is signed by an account holder. In other words, they give their authority perhaps over the telephone uh, or over the internet or with an electronic signature. From a data point of view, uh, the fact that the service user is not to rekey data is of even greater importance. The rules actually say you're not allowed to rekey any data from the point of capture onwards. So, for instance, a paperless service user that is capturing someone's authority over the telephone, the call centre can't write the details down on the call for later rekeying. They have to be keyed directly into a system and then fed through into a service user's back office. Similarly, online sign up, the information must be fed through directly from the website into the service user's system. One other thing with regards to paperless sign up, where we're talking about online uh, in relation to the server security, it must be a minimum of something called SHA-256 SSL, supporting TLS 1.1 or TLS 1.2. I must confess, I know absolutely nothing about that because I'm not a techie, but I'm sure uh, those that are responsible for your website will know all about that. So Andrew, what are the main benefits of collecting paperless direct debits? Well, of course, we live in an electronic age. Things have changed dramatically in recent years. So we're now used to doing things instantly, perhaps uh, online, and doing things electronically is becoming the norm. So a customer's perception of an organisation and the quality of service that they're being offered might dictate that a company wants to become a paperless service user. Of course, one of the main benefits from a service user's point of view is the time that is saved not having to wait for forms to be sent to you through the post. And that can have a knock-on effect. It can mean perhaps that uh, you can 
take payments from that bank account sooner than you would otherwise be able to. It's also of great benefit uh, by companies that are using a sales process, being able to get someone's agreement to something there and then either on the phone or over the internet. So it may even lead to increased conversions. And of course, a truly paperless process uh, eliminates paperwork. So we could even say that there might be some environmental benefits to that as well, which has become the focus of a lot of companies' attention in recent years. So Andrew, changing the subject slightly, what are the main reasons that direct debits fail? Well, this will differ from one organisation to another. It may even depend on uh, the customer's profile or the business sector that an organisation is in. For instance, I've delivered direct debit scheme training into care homes and, and by definition they tend to be dealing with elderly people. So it's, it's not flippant to say that they will very often find that collections fail simply because the payer has died and the bank account has been frozen. That's just a fact of life. But it's likely that across the board, the most likely reasons for direct debits to fail would be instruction cancelled, where a payer has gone to their bank or their payment service provider and cancelled the direct debit instruction at the bank, which, as we know, most of us can do online or on apps on our telephones these days. And another reason for non-payment is likely to be refer to payer which we generally take to mean insufficient funds at this time. But of course, that again will depend on the customer profile and, and the sort of thing that you're using direct debit for. Some service users will rarely get failed collections, especially not refer to payer, simply because of the type of people that they might be dealing with. So is there anything an organisation can do to limit this? Well, of course... There's not a lot you can do about things like people dying. Uh, but with regards to instruction cancelled, I suppose the best thing to do is to make sure that you download the reports that you receive through BACS as soon as possible. For instance, there is a, a report that is generated when somebody cancels their direct debit instruction with their bank called an ADAX report. And the idea of this report is that it notifies the service user within a short space of time that somebody has cancelled the direct debit instruction at their bank. So if you ignore that and then carry on trying to collect some money, clearly the collection is going to fail because the instruction is cancelled. So the trick there is to do what the rules suggest and download those reports and apply them to your systems uh, as soon as possible. The rules actually say that you should do that within three working days. As far as refer to payer is concerned, where we take that to mean that there are insufficient funds, as far as refer to payer is concerned, which as we mentioned, we take to mean uh, there are insufficient funds at that stage, probably the best way of, of trying to avoid this is to make sure that the payer is aware of the collection date. So really that's a case of following what the rules have to say about advance notification. Thanks, Andrew. Can you tell me a bit about indemnity claims and how these affect the organisations? So the direct debit guarantee states that if there has been an error, either by the service user, 
that's the organisation collecting the money, or by the payer's bank or payment services provider, the payer can simply go to their bank or payment service provider who will refund them. Having given the payer back the money that has been taken in error, the payer's bank will then raise a claim against the service user. Now, this is done using a process called the indemnity claim process. In our first podcast, we mentioned the fact that when a service user joins the scheme, they have to sign a legal indemnity that guarantees that they will reimburse the bank or payment services provider whatever has been refunded to the payer because the bank is clearly out of pocket in that situation. And because that indemnity is legally enforceable, the service user has to pay the claim. In fact, the way that it works is that they receive a notification from the payer's bank or payment services provider and the money is then debited from the service user's bank account 14 days later. If the refund is spurious or fraudulent, in other words, if the service user believes that there was no error, the service user would then need to take the matter up directly with the payer. In other words, they would have to resort to contract law uh, to get the money back from whoever it is that owes them the money. Just to mention that to reduce the likelihood of spurious or fraudulent refunds, BAX has introduced some measures over recent years. So to start with, banks and payment services providers may not always accept the payer's word. For instance, if somebody is claiming back multiple collections, particularly where they go back a long period of time, the bank may contact the service user first before refunding the payer. And in certain circumstances as well, BACs have also introduced a challenge process where if the service user has some evidence to show that no error actually has occurred, they can challenge the claim prior to the money being taken back out of their bank account. Okay, and so what can businesses do to prevent or prepare for this? Well, of course, there's nothing that can be done to stop people lying in order to get a refund. But we should point out that that is relatively rare. So the short answer to the question, Fiona, is to make sure that you don't make errors and also to make sure that you comply with the rules, ensuring that, for instance, people receive their advance notice. If you do those things, then in theory, you shouldn't have any claims. Okay, so Andrew, thanks very much for that really useful insight into direct debits, compliance, best practice standards, paperless direct debits and indemnity claims. Um, Our next episode in this direct debit series will be focused on direct debits for small to medium businesses. So if this podcast, podcast number two, is a step ahead of where you are with direct debits, listen to our next episode and we'll go into details about how collecting direct debits can really help your business and how to get the ball rolling. Payments Podcast from Bottom Line Technologies.